Hey, this is Lamar. You're listening to the Autism Pastor Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to take you into a conversation that I had back in March of this year with my good friend Lisa Jameson of Walk Right In Ministries. Lisa and I have been friends for a couple of years. We met at a disability ministry conference in Cleveland and have kept in touch uh, and usually see each other at least once or twice a year as we speak at the same conferences. And so earlier this year in March, Lisa invited me on to her show to discuss my new book, Disability and the Church. And we had such a great conversation that I want to take you into some of that discussion that Lisa and I had earlier this year. Again, this is a conversation that initially aired uh, with Lisa Jameson on her Facebook page live uh, called Walk Right In Ministries. So uh, enjoy the conversation about my new book, Disability in the Church, with my good friend Lisa Jameson. You know, I was reading from your book the other day, something that really stood out to me, even as you face cancer, you've faced other obstacles in your life. My family, my me personally and my family, we have faced disability and other challenges. And it, it strikes me that life brings interruptions. It's just the nature. Right. Of life. And yet God often most multiplies his purposes through the things that we feel are interruptions, mm-hmm. whether it's yeah. cancer or disability or whatever. And in your book, you, you reference um, scripture where the apostle Paul is speaking to the Galatians. And this is from the message. I'm going to read this passage and a quote from your, from you and your book. Okay. Galatians 4, 12 and 13 says, you were well aware that the reason I ended up preaching to you was that I was physically broken and so prevented from continuing my journey. I was forced to stop with you. That's how I came to preach to you. And it makes me think how often like Paul's journeys were interrupted with imprisonments all the time. In this case, some kind of illness mm-hmm. and um and we wouldn't have half of the new testament if he had not been forced into prison where he had to write down all these things in letters right. um and in this case he's he's acknowledging that it is by the nature of the interruption itself that he is being put where he is mm-hmm. and here's the quote what you say paul didn't make the choice to settle in galatia His transparency about his disability sheds light on some important lessons for the church. When you're living with disability, your body makes choices for you that you may not be able to control. Paul didn't have a choice about where he landed, but he did make the choice to use his time there to share the gospel. Paul says he came to preach to them by way of his disability. It was his disability that gave him both the perspective and the passion. I love that, Lamar, because not just the disability impacting a person who gets put in a situation in life because of it, but sometimes their whole family. You know, I, because of Carly's disability, have been put in a situation in life I didn't expect. It felt like so many of my own dreams, plans, even plans I thought God had given me were interrupted, and yet he did something amazing with that. So can you just share even from your own life and what that has meant for you personally and as a, as a teacher and a leader, a pastor of a church? Yeah, that, that part 
of the book is really important to me uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, so that letter that Paul writes to the church in the province of Galatia is his earliest. So it's the closest to his conversion. Um, so you kind of get the most unfiltered uh, relationship that Paul has with the church in his early years post his conversion. Um, and he talks about how, um, you know, my body made this choice. Now, later on, he goes on to say that, which gives us a hint to what maybe his disability would have been, or I think, I tend to think he had multiple things going on, but he talks about how the people in Galatia treated him kind. Initially, they didn't consider him a burden. And some of them loved him so much that they would have given him their own eyes, which lends us to understand that a lot of his problems, at least at that point, were his eyesight. Um, which is why we know he had a scribe. Um, but he goes on to say that, you know, I didn't choose to land here. It was because of my physical brokenness, but it created an opportunity for me to preach the gospel, for me to share with you my experience. And he later on goes to say, uh, encourages them because he's writing that part because he is saying, you, you know, you started off treating me very well. You didn't consider me a burden. Then something changed. And he's writing to encourage them to say, what happened? What changed? Why did the relationship change? Um, why do you now consider me a burden? He later goes on to say, because I'm telling you the truth and you don't like it, <laughs> which happens with most of us, right? But um, part, part of what's important about that section is, is that he encourages the church to put themselves in his shoes to say, you being able to receive the truth of the gospel from me should come from a place of me sharing from this physical brokenness that I have that gives you insight into God in ways that you may not experience or understand God because you don't live this life. So oftentimes what I've discovered even in my own life is even though I didn't know, uh, once I got diagnosed, and I was able to reflect and understand things uh, a little bit differently. I started to understand that there is a way that I understood God, understood faith, understood life, understood relationships that oftentimes was so vastly different from people who didn't have my experience that it, I don't want to say it gave me an advantage, but it gave me a unique perspective on what I can contribute to people's lives and what I can contribute to the life of the church, because as Paul says, I'm in a different set of shoes that that gives me the ability to see things a little bit differently. Uh, and I think that just is a part of the church um, that is needed. It brings vitality and health um, to the church because the reality is, and, and you quoted this in the book, when your body makes choices for you that you don't choose for yourself, you see life differently. You experience life differently. You experience God's grace in a way that others may not experience. And there's so many profound lessons that can be learned from persons who have to live this life of disability. And I often say that it's probably one of the most uh, prominent descriptions of the life of faith in the New Testament is this contest between flesh and spirit. Who better knows that? than people who are battling against things that their body is doing to them that they don't actually want their body to do. So it's a constant contest for me 
between flesh and spirit. There, my body does things to me, whether it's sensory processing, social anxiety, that I don't necessarily want it to do. But my faith leads the charge in rebelling against what my body is telling me is not possible. And so you get so many great insights from people like Paul and people with disabilities that can really strengthen the life of the church if we pay attention to the life that they have to live and the relationship that they have with God because of what their bodies often do to them. Well, and I appreciate you, you know, you, you, you could certainly lament a lot of that. And I'm sure you do mm-hmm. take that to the Lord on a regular basis, that tension, that competition that is inside your spirit, you know, mm-hmm. flesh and the spirit, but ultimately you, you have such hope and you have such a vision for the fact that God has purpose in that great purpose in that. And you may not even always know specifically what that purpose is, but you know there is a purpose. And, and I think that's what carries those who are bearing the burden, if you will, of disability Mm -hmm. in some way, whether it's as a parent or directly um, or siblings, um, they, those that are, able to walk in the healthiest place through that ultimately have to get to the point that I, I see in you where they, they know without a shadow of doubt, there's purpose in it, even if they don't always specifically know what that purpose is. Right. Yeah. I, I, I th- and it's a, it's something that you grow into. So I don't want people to assume like I just, magically (laughs) came to that conclusion like it's been a rough road um one of the things that encourages me is you know as we study life of paul you talk about his thorn and so some of that may have been eyesight some scholars believe he may have had epilepsy which may or may have not been a result of his conversion if you remember the the blinding light that knocked him off his animal um but when he when he finally tells us about that in second corinthians I don't know if people notice this, but that's that's really the first time that Paul lets us in on his personal life. Like we know about his theology, we know about his doctrine, we know he who he studied under, you know, he brags out my Hebrew Hebrews. But for the first time, when he talks about that thorn, he lets us in on this is something that I've personally been struggling with. Um, but he says something interesting, and this is sort of what helped me get to this place that you're talking about. He says, you know, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. And what what happened to me after I was diagnosed, I realized that Paul, in a way, is saying that the thing that he's having to deal with that God says is not going to go away is not the thing that actually stops him from becoming the best version of himself. In fact, it stops him from becoming the worst version of himself. He says, this actually keeps me from becoming conceited. Um, and so I don't want it. I ask God to take it away. God's not going to take it away, but this doesn't have to be the thing that stops me from being the best servant that I can be. So when I realized that, uh, I leaned into it as he goes on to say, so now I boast about my weaknesses and that's not the part that I get excited about. It's the second part where he says, so that the power of Christ can be seen. And I often tell people the reason why I continue to do that is because I need you to know what I'm up against so that you can see what God is up to. Um, And so I lean into it as a way of trying to tap into that strength that's available. And, and, and then people don't applaud me for what I do. They can see 
Christ working in me because they know what I'm up against. They know the struggles that I have, the challenges that I face. And in that process, which is a long one, there's a sense of renewal, spiritual renewal. You, you, you flex and continue to work on that hope muscle that you're talking about. And so that's the thing that gets me out of the bed in the morning before my feet hit the floor is that I have a significant challenges, but that's not the thing that's going to stop me from being the best servant that I can be. As a matter of fact, it actually helps me just stops me from being the worst version of myself. And if that's true, then today can be a great day. And I can, I can serve God with, with everything that I have today. I see a translation for that same kind of vision when we're raising our typical siblings to, I use the term typical in a very loose way, <laughs> but you know, I have, I have two daughters who are older than Carly. You have three boys. I have three girls. My mm-hmm. girls are all in their twenties now. And um, in fact, one of them's 28 later this week. And we talk about the, the challenges that these siblings grow up in because they're in a family experiencing disabilities, special needs of some kind. And yet in a similar way to how your disability has shaped your perspective and your sense of purpose and your faith, um, it has been an opportunity for those girls to grow up with incredible perspective that a lot of people don't have too. Um, And maybe not always better, but different and valuable. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I just say that to parents who have kids that they're concerned about, you know, the impact of very intense circumstances on the other children. And, you know, we could spend all day talking about siblings, but just a quick mention there of the fact that we are raising up future leaders who have a perspective the world needs to hear. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's another of these wonderful things God brings out of the interruptions, <laughs> the unexpected, yeah. even the disappointments. Um, before we go too much further, can you just take a minute to, to help us understand how you think the Bible defines things like diversity and inclusion and disability? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, uh, it's, it's a tricky one because a lot of the words that we use, um, that we superimpose on the Bible, we already come to it with a loaded meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we say diversity, inclusion, those types of things, and then we go to the Bible, we tend to look for it with our understanding of it. So I, I take some time in the uh, in the book to sort of break down uh, the passage in Ephesians where it talks about Christ dying so that he can tear down the wall of hostility between two people groups, which essentially were non-Jews and Jews. Um, but Paul says some things in there like, um, uh, you know, diversity, but individuality, um, sacrifice, um, reconciliation, those types of things. And I think there's five things that I spent some time on using to help us to understand my best understanding of what it means to be diverse biblically. Um, the, the one I would highlight probably would be is nowhere do you see this need for God to remove our unique ethnic, racial, cultural distinctions that actually diversity 
is the result of allowing all of those things to stay intact and still create a new people group, which Paul later says that Jesus calls the church, right? So if that's true, then I think that we have to understand that uh, God's design for diversity was never uniformity, it was unity. So God delights in all of the differences that he created. I mean, this is his creation, right? Like you think about how creative God is. We're talking about the same God who created the sun, the moon, you know, think about this. The sun stays in the same place that God put it and it's never moved to the left or the right, right? The everything that God created operates the way. And so you have this enormously creative, ingenious God who creates all of us with these differences for a reason and his intention is to put all those differences together into one family so that it reflects all of who he is and which is why we're we're all image bearers so every facet of every part of you and every facet of every part of me reflects the image of god and that is needed to stay intact in order for the world to get the full image of god so so diversity is has never been about uniformity it's been about unity i need God will say all of you who are distinct and created the way that I designed you to reflect all of this distinctness and differences in one body, which now gives the world a great, beautiful mosaic picture of who I am. So I think, you know, we have to really kind of go back to understand the essence of that because then it allows people to not feel the need to necessarily um assimilate themselves out of being who god created them to be <clears throat> god needs you to be you in order for his image to be reflected uh to the world so that he knows that that i created everyone the way that i created them for a reason and so there's so much more that uh, i say in the book about that but i think that's probably the best um description that i can give as you study through and there's so many passages on it we could probably take three weeks to talk about diversity well i you know i think one of the things that struck me as i was reading about all of these issues of equality and unity and what what it means to have two or more different groups of people be able to live together in a harmony mm-hmm. in a harmonious sort of way it strikes me that uh, a prerequisite for that, uh, a requirement for that kind of harmony to happen is a, an awareness of self with not, without it being a selfishness yeah. um, that, that we are able to have an appreciation of others and a compassion for others and their differences. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck, even convicted myself of how disability itself, one of the great challenges it puts on me as a mom, as a person, as a friend, as a part of a community, is that I'm very often fatigued and um, very aware of my own needs. (laughs) And, And then wanting inadvertently even sometimes to defend my own needs. And so I get so aware of my own needs that I'm unable to see clearly what others need. And it struck me in the book you talk about when you were diagnosed with autism, you asked yourself a hard question. Mm -hmm. What do people experience when they experience me? 
Yeah. And I just thought, wow, asking that question led you to some really helpful answers about how to function in community mm -hmm. and how to function in, in your best self. And I thought, I think in one way or another, the disability community, including the family members like myself, are asking ourselves how, or could ask ourselves, how might, how might, how might we ask a question like that of ourselves in order to be most helpful to others? And you're, you, you take it a little different direction in the book, which is really helpful saying to the church, the church needs to say, what do people experience when they experience us, the church? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's not, it's, questions yeah. are so helpful. Yeah. And so I, I had to ask that question. Part of my diagnostic journey was when I was doing my doctorate, I had to ask, it was a class that they made all the pastors take. Um, but it was actually in the psychology department, but we had to take, it was a, it was a requirement. And in that class, we had to do, um, no exaggeration, probably somewhere between 10 to 15 different personality assessments. One of which was we had to ask seven people who were close to us or work with us to evaluate us. And a lot of the trajectory towards my diagnosis officially was the gentleman that I worked with previously, who was on staff, uh, wrote um, an assessment of me for that project I had in school and it read almost like diagnostic criteria. He said, Lamar has a hard time picking up on social cues. Lamar gets laser focused on one task at a time. And it literally, and I don't know if he was noticing things or that was just as honest. I mean, it, it was obviously honest, but um, so that led me to ask that question because I had been hearing, first of all, I didn't know what a social cue was, so I had to Google it. <laughs> 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 and so I had never heard that terminology. I didn't know that there was such thing as body language. I didn't know that people, you know, I've always heard 90% of communication is nonverbal, but I never understood what that meant until he wrote that. And I started investigating and I realized this is what people have been saying about me my whole life. People are saying things with their body language and their facial expressions and their voice intonation that I don't have a translator in my brain to translate. And so what that made me start to ask was, well, what are people experiencing when they experience me? Because it's not what I thought it was. And it explained why I had such hard time in relationships, why friendships ended that I never knew ended, why a lot of things happened. So I asked myself that question, honestly, for the first time, because I realized when I have interaction with someone, I, I'm often almost oblivious as to how it actually went. And so I could be thinking that we had a great conversation, but maybe my facial expression or my body language didn't communicate that to the person. And so what I did is said, you know, I think the church needs to ask itself that same question because we tend to think that people's experiences with this is all good and it's not. Um, one of my favorite stories is when Jesus sits around with his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? Right. A lot of times we we spiritualize that. And I think there's a very spiritual element to that. But Jesus is really getting his finger on the pulse of the people. What are people saying about us? Hmm. What what you know, it's almost like the survey that you take at a restaurant. We want to know how we're doing. We want to know what is your perception of us? How are we treating you? How is our service? And I honestly believe that Jesus is sitting around with his disciples saying, OK, you know, you know, we have a bit of a following. People are following us, but 
what's the word on the street? How are people experiencing our ministry? What, who do people think that I am? And it's a good way for us to make sure as a church that we're actually trying to reach the people that we say we're trying to reach because oftentimes we measure ourselves by ourselves. As long as we church folks love and enjoy what we do, we don't often think about the people who are not there or the people who are not coming or the reasons why they're not coming. And that I found that to be very true of the disability community. We haven't asked ourselves as a church, um, what, what is their experience with us? We say most churches we are welcoming, but the data and the numbers and statistics and the stories from persons who are impacted by disabilities in their families don't match up to what we say. So we got to ask ourselves the question, what do people experience when they experience us? And it, and what I found in my research is it's not what we think it is. And so we've got, you know, some work to do on that front. What, what does some of your research say is the reason? Are the reasons plural? The reasons why they're not. Yeah, what, uh, a lot of it, you know, and I talk about some of it in the book, a lot of it actually starts with just bad teaching, bad teaching over the years. Like the people will be shocked to know that there's still a prevalent idea that um, somehow it's your fault that you have this disability or that your family is cursed by something or uh, you know, like the disciples asking, why was this man born blind? Um, <clears throat> was it his parents or him that sinned? Which, which I tell people is a ridiculous question because how much could an infant have sinned <laughs> yeah. to, to be for God to strike him blind? Like, you know, if they're assuming that he came out of the womb and sinned so bad that God made him blind. I'm like that, that's, you know, Jesus corrects that. And so I think um, there's still a lot of shame and stigma. Um, there are a lot of things that the church is either un is not equipped or ignorant about discussing intelligently, um, you know, both scientifically, medically, theologically, like we're just not equipped. And so those conversations don't take places in our church, don't take place in our churches, which creates this whole aura that we don't talk about that here. We don't talk about that. We don't, those are not real issues that we have to face and Believe it or not, whatever you're not talking about in your church, well, let me re reverse that. The things that you're talking about in your church will attract the people that you say you're trying to reach. So if you think about the fact that we don't hear sermons about disability and uh, about God, about faith, about those types of things, it's no wonder we don't attract that community because we don't talk about now. We'll talk about finances. We'll talk about how to have a happy marriage. We'll talk about how to raise your children. All great things things but you notice that when we're side the things that we're silent about tend to ostracize the groups of people who need to hear from the church on those matters so i think that's one thing is that we're just not very good at talking about it or we don't talk about it at all and so there's there's we don't have the answer to the problem that the disability community is asking because we're not even talking about it so why would they come to our churches <clears throat> because we're not actually addressing their real felt needs um, so, so I think a lot of it is teaching a lot of it is, is leadership honestly I know I've done a master's and a doctorate and I had never had any schooling or education on this type of ministry or this need um, 
And so, and I've said this before, whatever happens in a church for the most part happens because it's important to the pastor and the leaders. So until we do a better job at equipping and training and educating our pastors and leaders, we won't have um, as many people talking about it in ways that are, are helpful, which continues to create a barrier. When I disclosed my diagnosis, and this is in my former church, um, you would not believe the sense of weight that sort of collectively came off of the shoulders of people in the church because they felt free to talk about things that they were embarrassed to talk about. Hmm. I, I had people at my previous church on my staff that I didn't know that had a disability of some sort. There are family members, people who, you know, we fuss that you only come to church every eight weeks. Well, we found out why, because they have a child who has a disability or they have a, a adult parent that they're taking care of. They have all sorts of situations that we were unaware of and me stepping out and saying, this is what I'm dealing with. We're going to walk through this together. It gave the church the freedom to start to chip away at the shame and the stigma that's associated with it. And once it became free to talk about, everybody was open and it made it more accessible to people in the community to say, okay, well, now I don't have to hide. I can come to this church and know that my child may yell out, my child may bite somebody, they, you know, something may happen, but I'm not embarrassed uh, about what my family is dealing with. There's a place where I can go and be real and authentic and people are going to understand and we're going to have grace for one another. So I think uh, those are just some of the reasons why we don't see it. Uh, primarily, is just getting rid of the shame and the stigma, and and letting people have a place to to be real and say, "This is this is our family, and this is what we're dealing with, and we need a community that can walk alongside us." Well, I sure do appreciate how you 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 kind of unfold that in this methodic study, very common sense sort of way in your book, but. Um, in fact, I had highlighted exactly what you were just talking about on a couple levels here. One mm -hmm. quote is preaching is important to building a learning culture because it communicates that it's important to the pastor. And the truth is nothing happens in our churches that isn't important to the pastor. You just yeah. said that. And I, I, what, the first thing that came to my mind when I read that was, well, then how as special needs families, do we help? Can we help? make it important to the pastor. I think that we scratch our heads all the time. Why isn't this important to our pastor? You know, yeah. it is so often it's important enough that he's like fine with somebody else going off to do it, mm -hmm. but he, it's not, he doesn't want to have to bear much responsibility for it. And to be fair, there's lots of pressures on our pastors. In fact, right. you're very compassionate about that in your book and because you're a pastor. <laughs> right. Yeah too but how can families like mine do we have any role in helping the pastor get passionate about this yeah and actually that's one of the things I'm, i was hoping to spark a movement um so i tried to write the book where i had enough you know theology and good teachings that pastors can grasp a hold of and educate them but also make it accessible I didn't want it to be so lofty theologically that it was academic where families couldn't access it. So part of the goal of the book is to put that tool in their hands. So now you can have these conversations and have a sound doctrinal and theological conversations with your pastor as a 
watch is important because yeah. you've been given you know all the tools to have that because a lot of times that's what's intimidating is to try to get your passion to understand not just your passion but you know organizationally why this is good for the church biblically why this is good theologically why and I think that was one of the aims of the book is to try to put that in people's hands yeah. so that it's something that you can go to your pastor with and say look and I I try to make it under a certain amount of pages so it's a quick read for your pastor right and it's not something that is gonna they're gonna have to you know really toil over but but I also was saying and I have to tell this story I was a hospice chaplain for many years and I had to do spiritual care assessments and so um it just involved finding out what spiritual resources were great for families in their time of you know as their family member was declining so I had one couple elderly couple that I had to do an assessment for and I had met many pastors in the area that I um built relationships with because I would partner with them in their church to care for these families and I remember asking the older gentleman when I was there to assess him and his wife and one of the questions is do you have a church home that I can work with you know during this time I think she had end-stage breast cancer uh and he told me the name of the church and I knew that the pastor I had met him we had a relationship because I had serviced that area I said oh you're a member of John Martin's church uh and he's he looked at me and I'll never forget this Lisa he said young man he was probably close to 90 he said young man John Martin's a member of my church <laughs> and, I, and I laughed but as I drove away, I understood the wisdom of what he was saying that, you know, and I'm a pastor. I, I love the church, but I'll say this pastors come and go, but the church belongs to the people. And that's really what he was trying to communicate is that the church belongs to the people. And I share that story to say one of the ways that I'm trying to help the church get better is to empower the people to to understand that, yes, the things that happen in your church are important to the pastor and the leaders, but the church doesn't belong to the pastor and the leaders. It belongs to the people. And so we have to have a grassroots movement to say, we're not going to let you off the hook anymore. Like this is important to God. And so we're going to show up. We're going to do everything that we can to help you understand our family and how to work with us. But a lot of what has happened is, because it's been so difficult and traumatic for the disability community, we've stayed away from the church. And in staying away from the church, we've let the church off the hook. And the church should not be allowed to to stay off the hook any longer. And it's families like yours and mine and other families that have to rise up and say, no, the church belongs to the community. And we as Christians have a birthright to be able to engage in a faith community and the, the early church didn't consider it disability ministry. It was just obedient response to Jesus's teaching. That's why Paul says in the beginning, you were, you didn't consider me a burden. You cared for me. You would, you have given your eyes for me. What happened? Why are you now treating me this way? And I think that's sort of the history of the church. It started off. Some, some people don't realize some of the teachings and theology that we hold dear in the church, like the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Holy spirit, were espoused by persons with disabilities. The, the person who, who helped form our theology about the Trinity was blind. This is the legacy of the church. And as Paul said, in the beginning, you were, you were very accommodating and something happened. And I think that's sort of, sort of the trajectory of the book. What happened? And when did we stop being accommodating? When did it stop just being obedient to the teachings of Jesus and how he modeled it? 
And I think some of that is going back to encouraging families and it's going to be difficult. Um, but for us to, to take our rightful place and say, the church is also our birthright. And, and we, we would love to be a part of the faith community, but we've stayed away so long that we've let the church off the hook. And I would love to see families with disability, individuals with disability, you know, be put in the positions of leadership, influence in the church so that we can return back to what Paul initially said when this thing first started. Remember when I said that was his earliest unfiltered experience with the church was that they were very accommodating to his disability and then something happened. And I think we, if we return it back to the people, we can get back to that place. I think as a church, we don't do very well with the issue of long suffering. No. And um, we, we don't, pay close attention to some of those passages, even like the one, like the progression of Paul's situation and the lack of progression in his situation. We don't pay attention to biblically what happens in that or what should happen in that. And I know so many families talk about how they worry about being a broken record or wearing people out and they quit asking for help because they're worried about that they've overstayed their welcome or something. There's so much in what you were just talking about. I want to be able to unpack and we're already rounding closer to the end of the hour. But one of the issues is this idea that um, you bring up about putting down roots. I think our families need to put down roots in churches, develop relationships. That takes time. It takes grace and compassion. Um, It takes everyone, the church and the family and the person with disabilities to take an ownership role and to think in terms of covenant commitment. We are in a generation that discards their church so quickly. You know, the pastor leaves and they don't like the new pastor, they leave. They, yeah. the, music, the music worship leader changed and they don't like the worship as much, so they change. Yeah. They get offended by how they were treated in their disability circumstances, and they get wounded and they leave, you know, and in your book, you say at one point, um, people will always remember how you feel, how you felt. So if the church hurts somebody, it's really hard for a family to get over that feeling wounded. Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, you say this truth needs to be fiercely applied to the church's efforts to enable the disability to community to put down roots. Roots are about relationships, long-term reciprocal relationships that hold people close to the church and hold the church accountable for providing real care. So in this, what you talk about very throughout the whole book, but one chapter very prominently in terms of creating a learning culture where we're all learning from each other. The church is learning from the disability community They're learning how to help everyone commit to long-term relationship. And yet you get hypersensitive, stressed out, disability impacted families who are quick to haul off when they've been wounded. How do we know when it's time to to shake the dust of our feet and just move on because this church is not going to get it versus press in, be patient, be committed and invest in the long term and trust 
that a learning process is underway and it doesn't always go as quickly as we want it to. Yeah, that's a tough one. So I, I would first acknowledge that a lot of those families that are hurt and I in the past have been one, like I said, I've had success, but what people don't see is I've bounced around a lot of churches before I found somewhere that was accepting of me. Um, and this is even before I knew my diagnosis. I just didn't fit the stereotypical minister or pastor role, which made it very hard for me to follow my calling. So I, I acknowledge the hurt. It's real. Um, and it's sometimes very ugly. And I think, you know, I think first acknowledging that I do talk about in the, the book, there's some characteristics of churches that are ready to make that leap. So I talk about things like, you know, circles, they value circles over rows, where um, a lot of times if you have a church that is um, a large part of their programming and their vision is is group life, that tends to be a church that is more ready to take this on because they value relationships more than they do the Sunday morning programming, which, which you know, the front door to the church for most churches is Sunday morning. I get that. But when you have a church that values the relational part, and that's when I talk about circles over rows, you tend to have a better shot at getting them to understand because relationship is a priority, not just the religious yeah. rites and rituals. Uh, I'll talk about also in that section, pastoral approval versus pastoral apathy, right? Where it's not just something that, and it doesn't always have to be the senior pastor or lead pastor, but to have someone who is an advocate on the staff, whether it's elders, whatever your church governance is, who, who approves of that, right? Who understands that? So there, there are a couple of things in the book I talk about, about that. But I think the main thing for families who are trying to... 97 for those who are wanting to find. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, so, you know, read that. It gives some characteristics that will be helpful for families um, to say... These are things that you should look for. If you don't start to see some of those things, um, then it may be time to move on. But I also say that for me, one of the litmus tests is, is I'm not going to work harder at this than you are. Um, so there's that reciprocity. And even if you go back to, to um, earlier our discussion about um, diversity and unity and equality, right? Those things also have to be a very firm foundation of the church, right? Where it, it becomes much better soil. And that's why I use the parable of the sower to break down those three environments, like the learning culture, the linking culture, making roots, the leadership culture, right? Because Jesus in that parable, you notice he never blames the seed. He says it's the environment, Right. So assess the environment of the church, not necessarily the programming, because a lot of churches, when they start off, they're not going to be able to have all the accommodations, all the volunteers, all the things that may be necessary. But if their environment reflects the things that creates a soul for the type of relationship that's needed, because remember, Jesus says that the seed hits the ground. The first one is the bird ate it. The second one, the sun, life's problems wore down the and it wasn't very rooted the third one it was thorns but he never says it was a seeds problem so at some point you have to understand the difference between it being your problem to make the church better and the receptiveness of creating the right environments for that and so 
I encourage families to assess the environment. And those those four categories will help you do that, understanding what the environment of the church is like. Because it it, it may not, it, it will be a long-haul relationship for a lot of churches. But if you know that the environment is right and ripe for for inclusion for, for disability, for people with disabilities, then it gives you the hope to keep pressing and it gives you a purpose for being there. Um, but if you, if you can't identify the environment as being one that's right, then I would say, um, as you said, shake the dust off and, and move on knowing that, that, and I have to encourage families impacted by disability that knowing that that might not be your church, but that doesn't mean that you're not called to be a part of the church. Uh, and I still want to encourage people to know that that is still your birthright as, as a Christian to be able to be in community of faith with other believers. And that, that might not be the spot for you, but there's, we're working very hard to make sure that there is a place for, for families like yours and mine, where you can exercise your faith in community. That's an important part of, of our faith walk. And just because you're impacted by disability does not mean that you should not have access to that. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, you may give up on a specific church for Mm -hmm. a specific season, even maybe you'll even land back there sometime in the future. Um, But don't ever give up on the church in general, you know, it's it's all we have. And I talk about in the book, there's no plan B. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, I tell people all the time when he said that he meant it. Um, and if you think about it, he says the gates of hell shall not prevail. So for me, that means, you know, that's the extreme, right? So anything in between should not be able to stop the church from doing, if he goes all the way to the gates of hell, that means that disability, hurt, um, all those things that are very real should not prevail against the church. So we have to keep contending for our ability to be a part of the body of Christ and be a part of the church because Jesus gives us the end game. The worst thing that could tear the church up doesn't have the authority to do that. So don't let anything in between that, uh, those two extremes stop you. Um, so yeah, we have to continue to contend for what we know is, and when I tell people I'm an apologist for the local church, I'm very critical. Um, but that Ephesians passage that I mentioned earlier, he says Christ died for this. And for me, I take it very seriously. Like I don't, I don't in and of myself reserve the right to disrespect the thing that Jesus himself gave his very life to create, which is a diverse community of people groups that normally wouldn't have anything to do with each other. But Paul says he tore down the wall of hostility. He died so that we can be together. So for that, I will contend for, uh, and particularly for the families that are impacted by disabilities, I'll fight for that for you because Jesus died for that. He died for you to have the right to be a part of his church. And I think that that um, to not continue to contend for that is to give up on the thing that he gave his life for. Well, you do such a helpful job of giving us words for this conversation um, and framing it up in such a helpful biblical context, because like you said, it's often not being taught in the seminaries. So pastors are coming at kind of cold. And unless they do have very personal experience with it, they really may be well-intentioned, but they really don't know what to do with it. They're intimidated, distracted, busy, you know, and, and it's a good reminder that this is a helpful book intended to help 
the pastors, the church leaders, um, but also written to help us as families and people impacted by disability to, to know how to speak in a helpful way mm -hmm. into those situations. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just didn't want to go too quickly past, like you said, you hoped people could give this to their pastor. Um, help us to know even in that, like I know too many people who, who have tried to give their pastor books, you know, and it never gets read. Or mm -hmm. pastors who say, oh, if you only knew how many people give me a book. Well, this truly is a book that could be transformative for a pastor's leadership, for his church. Um, and yet it isn't just as simple as just put it on his desk and say, do me a favor, I really need you to read this. You know, mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we compassionately, but uh, with strength and challenge and the power of the Holy Spirit, pray ourselves into that conversation and have it be influential and helping our pastor see, here's a resource, here's my story. How do we do that? Yeah, I, I think one of the unintended blessings of COVID is we've all gotten more technologically savvy. So instead of just putting like the book, um, I would think of creative ways, like maybe a short two minute video, maybe something, you know, uh, you know, I'm thinking creative, like a time lapse of what a day of, of life is like for you and your family. And then saying, Hey, this is, this is what it's like. And we would really like to, you know, be a part of the church. Here's a great resource. Um, so I, so what I found is videos have been good, um, Obviously, preface it, maybe if there's a certain part of the book that really resonates um, with, with you, but also something that to look for is understand the mission, vision, and value of your church, and then find the side gate. Um, one of the things when I got to my new church, I told them that they have, um, I've been there two years, we have <clears throat> a list of core values for our church. One of them is diversity. And one of the things I said is that what we're going to do is we're going to expand on that. This is before I even wrote the book. The book came out. We're going to expand on what that means because this is a core value of our church. What does it mean to expand that beyond racial and ethnic diversity? What if we expanded our vision of being a diverse church to include people with disabilities? So sometimes if you marry what your hopes are for the church to what the church already has as their mission, vision, and values or programming, it's sparks the pastor's interest because it becomes an expansion of what the church is already doing instead of an addition or something else that they have to do. This becomes a greater way that we can express our mission to the community. Um, so be creative um, and then also lean on others who have found the book helpful. There's lots of great um, people who endorse the book. You were one of them, right? Um, lean on those people that you know your pastor may respect. Um, so there's lots of great resources and, and IVP has been great about helping us get the word out, but, you know, there are things like pastors resources that puts out, uh, what's called a pastor's box, I think quarterly where pastors get books or resources. Um, just say, Hey, you know what? I found out this book was, was actually recommended to pastors all across the country who subscribe to this box and this book was in there. Maybe that's something helpful. So I'm a fan of get to the people who can get to the people, know who your pastor respects, who they listen to, uh, know their, the mission, vision, and values of the church and use that as a side door in to maybe pique their interest at 
taken a look at the book. Well, it does just keep coming back to relationships, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stories and, and learning, learning from each other. And um, if you can't directly get that in the mind and the heart of the pastor to find others that you're already maybe naturally connected to or have mm -hmm. opportunity connected to. Um, ultimately, I think it's about helping others catch the vision you know, you talk about that over and over in the book is in one way or another, just that we have to catch the vision for an enriched church, you mm -hmm. know, because Jesus saw the church community as a rich way to experience kingdom here yeah. on earth as it yeah. is in heaven. Yeah. And it, and it truly is. That's why the subtitle is a vision. It's very lofty. <laughs> it's very ideal. Um, but I tell people, you know, Jesus invites us to live with our head in the clouds. He says, pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? So I always ask myself the question, if this were heaven, how would this look? And so for me, it's very idealistic, but I, I tend to be the type of person who lives with my head in the clouds. I believe for the ideal, and I believe that God has a grand ideal for his church, and it's worth shooting for and we can tell our pastors over and over again the truth that my family will enrich this church. My family's experience can enrich our perspective of God, but we need to go somehow find the next step in helping them see a picture of what that looks like. Not just hear the truth of that, that it's true, but catch a picture of what that looks like. So right. um, almost like you say, put my head in the clouds of what how, how does my family and families like mine in, in specific ways, how does Carly add gifts mm -hmm. and experience to the church so that they can learn what heaven on earth could look like? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I hope I appreciate that we're um, having this opportunity today to hopefully help encourage other families and help them catch a vision for how they can share a vision and so forth. I wish we had more time because one other thing I really wanted to talk about was, um, and, and I'll just mention it here because you can go read about it in the book, is the role, the specific roles that people who have the disabilities can play in leading the church yeah. and should play in leading the church. And as a parent, I, um, I have a very low functioning adult child who, who has, it's very hard for me to, to imagine specific ways that she can be a leader in her church. But I do believe that as a parent, um, as any parent raising any child, whether they have disabilities or not, one of our roles is to help them grow up with a vision for mm -hmm. the role that they can play in shaping the church and yeah. enriching the church. So yeah. That's one another thing we could talk about another day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think and, a lot of that, if I just say quickly, a lot of that too is I think the church needs to reframe its concept of leadership. It, it's hard to imagine certain persons. And I think, you know, there are some very tangible and real things that you brought up. But a lot of it actually has to do with the way that we have structured and given the impression that leadership has to look, which is why we assume that there are persons who are not qualified for that role. But there's lots of ways that people can lead, you know, whether they're verbal, nonverbal, um, 
it's just like you said, it's relationship. It's taking the time to to get to know them, understand how God works through them, and what God might be saying through how their lived experience can teach us and lead us in the direction that we need to go as a church. So, a lot of it has to do with we need to stop holding up these artificial standards of leadership that are not helping the church grow and become more um, diverse and including people with disabilities. And that really does mean we have to slow down sometimes. We absolutely, absolutely. Building relationships. Well, um, this has been delightful, Lamar. I thank you so much. Hey, thank you again for listening to the Autism Pastor Podcast. Do me a huge favor. If you're enjoying the content on this podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure that you go in and hit the subscribe button. And then also wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure that you're leaving a positive review. That way it allows for more people to be exposed to the amazing content that we offer here on the Autism Pastor Podcast. If you're looking for Disability and the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion, that book is now available everywhere that books are sold. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, your favorite local bookstore. And you can also find it at InterVarsity Press, my publisher. Listen, I don't take it for granted that you chose to spend this time with us. So thank you again for listening to the Autism Pastor Podcast. Peace.